Hello and welcome to Nerd Up number 90 and we're going to be talking about reactive programming. I have with me Matt Podwisoki. How do I pronounce that, Matt? Matt Podwisoki. Okay, perfect. How about you tell us a little bit about yourself, Matt? I'm a principal software developer at Microsoft and I'm currently working with the DX TED team which stands for Developer Experience, Technical Education and Development. And I'm working on a number of efforts such as the Internet of Things, as everybody is, and reactive programming at scale. So I'm currently working on uh, two projects, the Tali project, which is a open source platform for creating P2P applications. And I'm also working, of course, on reactive extensions for all languages, whether it's .NET, C++, JavaScript, etc. And I'm Tim Oxley. I'm a front-end, back-end developer at NodeSource. I do a whole bunch of different things, and it's a very frustrating thing. And so what I'm trying to do is understand more about new programming paradigms so that I can do my job better. This brings us to our first sponsor, AndYet. AndYetConf is happening October 6th to 8th. The goal of AndYetConf is to assemble the diverse developers and doers pushing forward the bleeding edge of the web. The team at AndYet puts their entire creative, wild, risky hearts into it, hoping to inspire the community to help bring open communication to the open web, using storytelling, theater, music, and multi-sensory design to create a once-in-a-lifetime experience. For tickets, call for speakers, sponsorship info, and more, go to andyetconf.com or check out AndYet's blog at blog.andyet.com for updates. So Matt, what's mm-hmm. your history? You said you've been working at Microsoft, but where were you before that and why are oh. you involved with this reactive programming stuff? Beginning in my career, I was a Java programmer, C++ programmer, doing a lot of government healthcare. I just felt that at the time that, you know, healthcare kind of really needed some help. So I was working on federal healthcare and Medicaid and Medicare to make sure, you know, people got their claims paid, you know, was fair and, you know, had a modern system instead of these old COBOL rickety things that they had. But ultimately, then I, I moved on to things like satellites and, and things like that. And then I moved on to, to Microsoft, where I've been now for the past nine years. And so, you know, to kind of give you a little bit of history, the team that's where the reactive extensions really came from, it was a team that was kind of formed around 2006, 2007, trying to figure out what this thing, what this cloud thing really was. And so what we decided to do was, was basically create this framework for creating this tier splitting application. So I could write my application once and I could target the desktop, I could target Silverlight, I could target JavaScript on the web, and all I had to do was, was create one code base. The problem with that, of course, is, is we ran into a problem with how do you marshal events across barriers? And we're like, well, we don't know because in, in .NET, events are these kind of weird kind of object metadata. They're not real methods or anything like that. So that's what led us to create the reactive extensions, which was the idea, or what we called it at the time, was linked to events. And the idea there is we had a first-class object now instead of this weird metadata that were fully represented what, what an event was. So now... I had, just as I would have, an array of, of objects that I can hand to people to process. Now I can hand people a collection of events to process. And that was kind of the dawn, as it were, probably back in, in the 2009 time frame when we first released it. 
And then uh, 2010, I, being the big JS fanboy, decided that I was going to, to help port it over to, to JavaScript. And we first demoed this back at JSConf 2010 on, on track B. And, you know, a lot of people were absolutely amazed. You know, people like Ryan Dahl were just was like, holy crap, this is really awesome kind of thing. But we really didn't get any traction because it was, we were kind of explaining it, you know, in the whole idea of duality, category theory, you know, monads, et cetera, instead of actually solving your actual problems, which was, was you know, how do I really solve the, the coordination problem that we all fundamentally have in JavaScript, which was how do you compose together callbacks and, and events, which was back in 2010, which was probably the primary way that everybody was communicating. This is the days before promises uh, were really even in the picture. So we were, we were kind of pioneers in that effort. And kind of since that time, we've kind of realized that where Rx really kind of fits is, you know, you have this model where you're thinking about synchronous versus asynchronous and single value versus multiple value, where you know, a single value obviously is anything in, in JavaScript, but then you have the multiple values. So with JavaScript, you had things like arrays. Now you have things like iterables, sets, maps, generators, etc. And then on the other side, you know, for single values, you have promises to compose a single value that you can chain together, and it will look and feel, you know, kind of like sequential programming. And really the same applies, you know, for multiple async values is, is the observable so that you can you kind of think about, you know, have the same programming model as the array, but actually be dealing with, with things such as mouse movements or stock tickers or, or any other you know, data source, web sockets, whatever it is, kind of dealing with that in the very same way. So that was our, our big laudable goal, and that's where we kind of are with Rx and why, why we created it. Now we have this thing that people are calling you know, reactive programming. Was that... Did that already exist, or was this sort of like, did, were you building something with the idea of reactive programming in your head, or did you sort of realize that we were doing this, or did, yeah, how did well, that Well, yeah, I mean, when we obviously changed it back in the 2009 time frame from link to events, because this is all part of the Project Volta, which is actually on Wikipedia, but you know doesn't really exist. Project Volta was the tier splitting thing, so we we decided to you know get linked to events, and we called it reactive extensions. We're like, okay, what we considered to be arrays and things like that were you know pool based collections were called interactive, and then we had the the push based side we called reactive. So we generally just considered reactive programming at the time to basically being responding to events. And, and, you know, quite honestly, we've been doing that pretty much throughout our JavaScript lives here. I mean, everybody has got, you know, since the days of adding event handlers, well, that's reactive programming at its core. But it's not really compositional reactive programming because, you you know, you have a lot of state sitting around and you have to try and hand coordinate two events together, and it's kind of difficult. Our idea was to kind of fix that because most people were using, you know, the gang of four subject observer pattern where you have this 
subjects. In the case of the DOM, it would be something like some sort of DOM element. And then you could add observers by set calling add event listener or in, you know, an event emitter add listener. And you can also remove observers via remove event listener or remove listener in Node. So we've been doing reactive programming for, for a good long time, and people just didn't know quite what to call it. A lot of people start to merge in the word functional is because like people were starting to see things like map, flat map, filter, reduce, et cetera, show up onto, onto reactive programming, and they're like, oh, well, then this must be functional programming. But that's not quite the case, is that what you're dealing with here is reactive programming at its core. You can call it compositional reactive programming, whatever you want to call it. But, you know, if you go back in history, probably about 1998, there was a set of papers by Connell Elliott and the late Dr. Paul Hudak who were trying to talk about this idea of reactive programming back then. Because it was it was a thing back in the C plus plus days as well, you know, and MFC and all of those other things is how do you respond to mouse movements and 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 so forth. So they were you know way ahead of us in in the the web world in that respect. So what they decided to do is instead of the way that most people think about events is they think about discrete events and that's about it. And what they decided to do was talk about continuous time in addition to these discrete events, and kind of being able to, to compose the two together. And that's what they call functional reactive programming. So it's a notion, once again, of continuous time, meaning something like a clock. It always has a value, so that's called a behavior. And then you have this notion of a, of a discrete event happening, which was called an event. And they, they use this paradigm to what they call get rid of time glitches. That's a pretty long history, and you know, functional reactive programming really, you know, if you want to get dive deep into it, you can look at things like Fran as one of those kind of languages that really, you know, hones what what functional reactive programming is. So it was it was a term that was long, long used before people started to apply it to, to JavaScript programmers and JavaScript frameworks. So I kind of like to let history lie in that respect is that FRP has this very precise meaning that McConnell and Paul laid out and we can come up with much much better terms than functional reactive because to me functional is such a, a, a nebulous word what do you think of when you think of functional programming you think of well first class functions and then you start to think about immutability you start to think about laziness, you start to think about a lot of those things. Well, most reactive programmers, they're perfectly mutable. There's no such thing as, you know, immutable state, as it were. It's free range. So so to, to conflate functional programming, I would always, you know, argue that it's more along the lines of pure functional programming that should, you know, if you're going to go down that line. So what we're talking about here with, with reactive programming, I don't think the, the word FRP really describes accurately what we're trying to do here. I think you know, things like compositional event processing is much, a much better term to use here because we're talking about how do I compose together mouse move, mouse up, and mouse down together to create a mouse drag event. That really has nothing to do with functional programming at all. It's just more along the lines of compositional programming. Right. 
So it seemed to me like one of the things that, you know, these reactive programming tools and these ideas, they're sort of breaking down the things that we're doing into sort of smaller primitives. You you touched on it a little bit earlier about, you know, you've got a, a single value so a single value is like a, you know, it's just a value, multiple uh-huh. values is an array, then you've got you know, a single value in time, which is something like a callback or a promise, and then you've got multiple values over time, which is a stream. Remember, I read a, it's by a guy called Chris Cowell, um, it's a Kowal, thing called Cowell, yeah, uh-huh. Kowal, uh, yeah uh, General Theory of Reactivity, it's a really nice post, and it really, uh, for me, opened my eyes. I read this when promises were just sort of starting to well, we realized, oh, this stuff's actually happening in JavaScript now, so we're going to have to sort of resolve our differences about these things because, you know, people get very upset about promises. We know we have the singular, which is the value, and we've also got the, you know, the plural temporal thing, which is the stream, but uh-huh. then suddenly we're getting all upset because somebody's suggesting that we have sing- singular temporal. It made me just realize these are just tools and they're not something to be like, you know, getting upset about. Um, no, no, I mean, it, it is just that. I mean, a promise is just a future value. If you think a uh, future immutable value, if you think about it as that thing, that's great. The other aspects of, you know, that people have complaints about promises as implemented today is, you know, is, is they lack certain things such as, you know, cancellation, which means I can't cancel one of these once it's in flight. How do I do that? It lacks the notation of once I'm done, meaning the entire chain is done, what do I do? Those kinds of things are missing from the spec. And, and I think, you know, quite honestly, maybe something like a task is a, a little bit better and more descriptive thing, kind of like task.js from David Herman is better apt to those kinds of things because a promise to me should be an immutable value, never to be canceled, always to be resolved to the same thing over and over and over again. A lot of these tools are sort of you know, bringing these core, I guess, abstractions, bringing them up to, into sort of a, like a concrete interface. And it's a yeah. little bit frustrating that we don't have this stuff just in JavaScript, just natively as, as yeah. primitives. Well, well, we're getting there. And that table that Chris put together was actually a, a table that he kind of cribbed from us, which during our many presentations, which was you know, describing where observables and strings really fit into, into the programming landscape. They are general interfaces that I think are fairly good to have. And in fact... Jafar Hussein, who uh, who joined PC39 uh, about a year or so ago, has worked on getting the observable type, which is you know kind of the core of Rx, to be standardized by TC39, and that's an ongoing process. You know, it's a slow process, but in order to make sure that you you know you cover every little thing that developers need, you kind of have to work very hard at that. But yes, so that would be you know, awesome to be able to now have in your code to be able to describe events as these first-class objects that you can pass around. And what's great about that is the fact that now what you can do is it's great for testability purposes, for example, and is now I can hand you any set of data that you can you can process instead of having to wait for these events and having a, some sort of trigger or something like that is now I can just hand you this thing you can subscribe to it and and so forth so to kind of break down what that observable really is 
is you have kind of two sides to this. You have the observer and the observable. So the observable is the producer of values. And it really only has one method called subscribe. And that subscribe takes in an observer. The observer is basically an object which basically allows you to to handle when a next value comes through, when an error comes through, and when a completion comes through, so that you can handle zero to infinite number of, of next events, followed by either, you know, optionally, by either an error or, or a completion. And what you get back from that subscribe is kind of the subscription object. And that subscription object so now has all of that logic of how to compose it with the next thing all codified in it. To make this a little bit more easy to understand, imagine if it were that we've wrapped the mouse movement event as an observable. So the last part of constructing observable is how you tear it down. So how you tear it down would be to remove that event listener. So the, you know, the creation would obviously be the uh, add event listener, and the cleanup would be the remove event listener. So now you can start composing these things together kind of as Lego blocks, and then when you realize that you're done at the very end, when you unsubscribe, it cleans up all of those event handlers at once if you start to combine together mouse up, mouse down, etc., or touch events, whatever. When you unsubscribe, that cleans up all of those handlers at once. So you don't have to worry about memory leaks anymore, you know, things of where you've got dangling event handlers. That just doesn't happen anymore. And so it's it's a much, much better programming environment because now not only do you get compositional behavior, but also your data that you really care about starts flowing through that observable. You know, the, the input stream from a text box starts to flow through as an observable. So I can start getting text values every time someone, you know, hits key up on something or any time some new data comes in through a web socket. All of those kinds of things I'm getting, you know, in real time. Kind of like this universal kind of interface that you can use to handle both synchronous and asynchronous events and do so in a composable way, so it's sort of like changed together like a sequence of things that are happening. Right, exactly. Okay. Yeah, and, and so it has you know that deterministic build-up and that deterministic teardown, which is really important because if you're dealing with you know sites like Netflix, for example, and you really want to make sure that you have a responsive user interface, you know, when when things go out of the page, you want to make sure that you clean up to not only remove all the, the nodes in the DOM, but you also clean up all of the event handlers as well. And as you have that capability with the teardown aspect of the observable, you're good. It's, it's done automatically for you. You didn't have to sit there and remove event handlers yourself. It's just done as part of, of the construction and composition of your observables. What you're describing here, for me, sounds an awful lot like Node's stream system. So mm -hmm. can we do all this stuff with Node streams? And what's the, you I mean, you can certainly do a lot of the same things. And, you know, a lot of people such as Substack, Dominic Tar, et cetera, have certainly done that where you can take the streams and put them in object mode 
and then start to flow data through. And, you know, that's why they have you know, new things such as the transform stream and, and you know, readables and writables and so forth, but more along the lines of you can do a lot of things with the transform stream. And then you do your composition through, through pipe. It's a fairly limiting model. I mean, there are, there are certainly frameworks such as Highland, which are you know, trying to take the, the best things of, of node streams and combine them together with reactive programming. It's certainly intriguing, but certainly there are better ways to handle that. Fundamentally, throughout the ages, Node has certainly had it, its fair share of problems with the streams interface as it has been, you know, hence why they've gone through three iterations now. Whereas, you know, fundamentally for us, we haven't changed our interface since day one. And the idea of getting all these things like back pressure are just things that we can just add in over time. And, and it's not necessarily fundamental to how things operate. But like I said, is, is the composition model for us is a lot nicer in the observable world because we don't have to worry about things like back pressure, pause and resume and drain and all of those other things. But at the same point, are you using observables for, for binary data? Well, it certainly is possible. I mean, Dart as a language has certainly proved that because what they did is they took the Rx design and made that the core fundamental piece for their async. So if you go into their async literature, they don't mention us by name, but they did in, the, in an earlier blog post. All of their events are first-class objects, so mouse, mouse move, etc. Then you can call listen, and listen will start to you know, pump through events. They also decided you know, that this stream interface that they created, they didn't call it observable, but they called it stream, which is fine. They also added in the ability to kind of combine together the, the binary protocols of dealing with data as first class, binary protocols of dealing with you know, file I.O. and the more object-based things with data streams such as mouse movements and, and so forth. And I think it's a really compelling model because they have a lot of the things that you know, we, we would want, things like back pressure and all that, they already have. Which makes me question, you know, the, the W3 streams. Although it's a it's a nice idea to get these a nice uh, streaming APIs in there, why they didn't take a you know a harder look at the observable and the stream kind of interface and seeing how they could kind of take the two and kind of meld them together, as it were, uh, the way that Dart already did. But that's just an open question. From a lot of the, the discussions I've had with people about, you know, what's wrong with you know, the, the new things that are going into JavaScript, a lot of complaints about things like, for example, promises not being kind of like low level enough. Um, uh -huh. People would like to see sort of a, low, a more low level prim primitive which you could use to build promises out of. And we're sort of getting that with the observable, well, maybe we're getting that with the observable in a future version. I wonder whether one of the reasons why these things come into JavaScript just sort of overbaked maybe is because they're solving a specific problem that somebody has and if they go down onto sort of a lower level then there's like there's more I guess arguments maybe to yeah. be had um, oh absolutely and you know it's you know to look at at promises and the, the way it was standardized was actually kind of interesting in its own right just because it started first, you know, with the promises A and, and, and promises A plus spec. 
And all those are really concerned about necessarily what wasn't necessarily construction of, of promises, but to say that when you call then, you get you know, very consistent behavior between libraries. And so the W3C and, and Wetwig and so forth were like, well, we want this because we're tired of, of using callbacks for a lot of our APIs. We would like something you know, to denote a future value and, and so forth. It started kind of as pressure from the web world and then eventually made its way into pressuring into TC39 and said, all right, well, maybe we need to, to implement promises since it seems like the web community seems to want these things. And so it went through any number of iterations and so forth. And then you had additional things such as, you know, the cancellation spec and all of that that was kind of dropped or not really continued. And they just took the, the bare promise as it was with the, you know, the construction, the thenable, and so forth, and kind of just standardized that. But they did, of course, make it subclassable, so you could, yes, you could build your own promises that way. But it would be nicer, yeah, to have more of the ASAP model of being able to, to tell the browser and to tell Node kind of, you know, as quickly as possible, do the next thing. That doesn't quite exist. You know, we have set timeout on some environments. We have set immediates. We have process next tick, whatever it is. But that true underlying async mechanism, you know, differs from thing to thing. And it would be kind of nice to have, you know, one kind of standardized, as soon as possible, do this and build from there. Hmm. And that's um, why I'm saying is, you know, the differentiation between, say, a task, which is more of a side-affecting kind of thing, versus a promise, which is more of a future value, as it were, and that delineation okay. between the two. Let's move on to our next sponsor, CodeShip. CodeShip is a hosted continuous delivery service focusing on speed, security, and customizability. You can set up continuous integration in a matter of seconds and automatically deploy when your tests have passed. CodeShip supports your GitHub and Bitbucket projects, and you can get started with their free plan. CodeShip also just launched a new feature, Organizations. With CodeShip's new Organizations plans, you can create teams, set permissions for specific team members, improve collaboration, and maintain centralized control over your organization's projects and teams. You can save 20% off of any premium plan for the next three months by using this code, NOTEUP. Head over to CodeShip.com slash NOTEUP to get started and be sure to follow them on Twitter at CodeShip. When you are you know, starting a new project, mm-hmm. do you just instantly start with reactive tools or do you sort of start you know, with something else? Is it, is it something that you can kind of use you know, from the beginning of a project or is it, does it, is it something that you need to you know, get to a point, a certain level of complexity before you add it? Yeah, that's a very good question, and, and I get that all the time. Is is you know people say, well, you know, should I just start with things like RX immediately? And I, of course, say, you know, what are your pain points, or what are your expected pain points that you're going to have? Because if you're going to deal with say one callback in one event, and you don't really need to worry about the coordination of the two, maybe using something like RX might be overkill for for what you need to do. But you certainly hit when you hit that complexity level of multiple events happening, asynchronous things happening, you want to somehow maintain state in some single object, as it were, instead of just scatter shots, putting state everywhere. That's where RX really, really shines. And 
that's where I urge people to do a lot of these things. That and you know, even you know, add on things if they're doing any sort of data access, for example. We have so many options, for example, to do retry logic automatically, just you know, basically put a retry in X number of times, and then do a catch to say, well, if after all of those times I still can't get through, just return some default data or do something else. And that's, that's great for, say, like offline scenarios, et cetera, is that you, you can still return some data there and it's all like I said it's in line it's all compositional to do that that's when I start to show the value proposition of what Rx can give you you know things like the autocomplete example of debouncing events to say you know not so fast those kinds of things when you start to see that kind of complexity that's when you want to start pulling in a library like that However, you know, when it when it comes to a lot of new libraries, Angular and so forth, I mean, a lot of people are pulling in them in by default. And what's interesting about that is, for example, Angular two, as as you know, is is going through a large rewrite. And what they've decided to do is pull in RX as their HTTP module, basically, so that you get all of that retry, catch, and finally logic. Uh, that you would expect to get. They get all that for free. They don't have to write all of this code. They're just going to use it. So there will be a lot more Rx users in, in the near future when, when Angular 2 ships. But even still in the, in the React world, a lot of people are, are seeing that you know, in the very simple examples of using React, they want a way to you know, store their state and update their state with reacting to events and so forth, you know. So there's a notion in in RX of of a subject, which is both a uh, producer and a consumer. So the producer side, for example, I can emit custom events using using a subject, and I can consume it as well from some other location that you know has an interest in that. So so that's like a through stream. Exactly. It's just like I'm going to produce events and somebody else is going to listen to them. So it kind of handles both ways. Transform stream is what I meant. Yeah. 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 And what people are doing, like for example, in data binding scenarios, they're using what's called a behavior subject. And if you've used uh, things like Knockout before, so Knockout took a lot of ideas from Rx and made it into this tiny library that mostly dealt with two way data binding and so forth. And that was largely basically taking things like the behavior subject, which is, you know, provides you an initial value to bind to, and then you can just subscribe to the changes, then do a call next to, to produce another value. So there are a lot of interesting things that you can do there when you start to bring in things like two-way data binding. So there, there are many, many entry points for Rx and for reactive programming in every little thing that you're doing, when, whether you're dealing with events, when you're dealing with callbacks, when you're dealing with data binding. It's all up and down throughout there. And in fact, you know, a lot of people are using it just that way. For example, Netflix has kind of gone all in on, on their UIs using Rx you know, to cut to handle a lot of the things like their animations, their data binding, their data access, and so forth, kind of as their entire stack because they ran into such complexity, is then they started to realize that this library solved more than just one of their problems. It solved many of their problems. 
Mm. And so they kind of just you know started reducing all of their own custom code and just kind of sprinkling it into what a reactive library could already do for them. A lot of the, the examples you've been giving have been you know, uh, application-level concerns or like uh-huh. if you're going to be pulling in a large framework like Angular, you know, you're, sort of, you're buying into this thing. What uh-huh. about for the use on like a smaller scale? So if, I'm, if I wanted, wanted to write a library, reusable library, is this, like, is this too heavy to use? I mean, what, what, what are the, is oh, it yeah, how big I, are the no, files and yeah. what's the no, performance? No, absolutely not. And, and so if, you, you know, if, you, if you're creating these, these sorts of applications, what you can do, you know, instead of exposing events, as, as a lot of people do, you know, exposing events and, and callbacks through their APIs, they can certainly introduce observables instead. So, you know, have a subject, behavior subject, replay subject, whatever they want behind the scenes or just some plain old observable. And that people, the consumer can pick it up and start to, to do things such as you know, transformance with maps and filters and s- some sort of aggregation that they want to do. There's a few libraries out there. I guess one of the mm-hmm. concerns, I guess, is let's say I want to build a CSV parser or something mm-hmm. and I expose an RX interface to it. Um, mm-hmm. That sort of, I mean, that makes it nice and compatible with people who are using RX, but mm-hmm. uh, people who are not using RX, what's the, is there a compatibility story between non RX and RX and other reactive? programming tools. Well, that's that's certainly the the hope moving forward is that we can all kind of agree on something like that and that's why the observable spec is that important. Kind of the way that, you know, promises A+ got everyone on board with how Venables should work. It would be certainly nice to have something like that and perhaps it's it's just codified in the the overall observable standard that TC39 produces. I mean, we can certainly, you know, throw out there and say, you know, an observable spec for the community driven versus, you know, TC39 driven, we can we can certainly do that. Basically what I'm doing now in terms of RX is I'm shipping what I call RX core, which is kind of this very just nothing but, you know, very much a shim for any p- person who wants to expose an observable and as long as anyone else follows the same kind of idioms, they'll be just fine. So they don't get any of the things like the maps and filters. They can certainly implement them their own way, just as long as they respect what subscribe does and and what it returns, then they'll be just fine. So that's what I'm hoping is, is people will start to pick up on this, use it as a shim, and then they can go easily back and forth between libraries. How, how big is the, the core there? The core is, is somewhere around, gosh, uh, G-zipped and, and tiny. I mean, it, it's not large. It's we're, we're talking 40K or less in terms okay, of... But that's still, I, I guess the thing is, I'm um, less concerned about the size and more about, like, I guess, the code complexity. It's, uh-huh. you know, that's, that's a big concern when, you know, if, you, if you're adopting a library, you need to also, there's, there's always that risk that, you'll decide to go work on something else, you know, pursue yeah. your rock career or something, and then suddenly I'm stuck, yeah. you know, all of my stuff's inter- uh, using this interface, you know. Right. Um, well, and, and that's why I'm hoping that, um, you know, TC39 and, and so forth will, will certainly do that. But, yeah, I mean, there doesn't seem to be any wide consensus from a lot of the community as to, you know, subscribe and, and all of that. But but what's nice is the fact that you know the reactive extensions themselves is is a pretty large family of of languages to begin with, 
in so much so that we have, you know, if you go to reactivex.io, which is kind of our, our home site, we have any number of flavors already covered there. We have anything from Swift to Java to .NET to JavaScript, Groovy and Rx Ruby and so forth, and Python as well. You have all of those already in there, and they all follow pretty much the same semantics. And that's a pretty cool thing is the fact that I can go between languages and I'm pretty much going to expect the same semantics throughout, which is pretty nice because, you know, for an example, like Netflix, when they want to transfer people between layers, so for example, I want to take a JavaScript or a Java programmer and put them on, on JavaScript layer, well, they don't really have to learn anything new because they already understand our acts. It's the same the same ideas, basically. Yeah, that's one of the big reasons uh, benefits of one using JavaScript. You know, JavaScript everywhere means that you don't have to use a completely different. You know, if you've got an app and you, it's all backend. Maybe it's in Ruby or PHP or something. Oh then yeah, you works PHP as well. Yes. Sure, but but if you've got a backend app, one of the, the big benefits of JavaScript is that, uh, you, and you want to move it to the front end, you don't have to completely rewrite it and come up with either either port the thing, which means that you'll probably be using different paradigms. And like, you know, there's usually a paradigm mismatch when you try to move one thing from another. I mean, that's the beauty of, of Rx is the fact that it is, it's super flexible, you know, in terms of its use on Node versus its use in, in the browser. For example, in in Node, you could use it easily in place of the async module, and in fact, I've done that in a few projects that I've done for Tali, for you know running multiple callbacks at once. And, and there are a lot of things, like for example, the things that Power Bower Search, for example, run on RX, those kinds of things. So there are very much a lot of things that that RX can do on the server side just as well as it could do on the client side. Even more so, it gets even into, you know, into more interesting scenarios when you start to do things like data analysis and so forth uh, that you can do. You can start to really slice and dice data, you know, gr doing group buys and, and all of that over time. Like, so for example, if I'm doing you know, stock analysis and so forth from some web socket, some feed, whatever, I can do some group buys, I can do some analysis, things from advanced stream processing of, of the ideas of, of doing like rolling windows of, of data to, to start to look and analyze data over time, you know, so for advanced logging scenarios and so forth, all of that's built right in. And so it, it plays even a bigger role on the server than it does on the client in, in, in a lot of respects. What about like the persistence story though? I mean, is that relevant at all? Is a lot uh, of databases... It, it's more of a transport yeah. mechanism than it is a persistence layer, although you could certainly argue that you know, things like subjects and you know, behavior subjects and replay subjects do persist data. For example, a replay subject can store infinite amount of data, as you know, much as your memory can hold, and then replay it back to the world each and every single time. And we're going to get to the point as well, which is going to be more interesting, which is to take the ideas of Rx and serialize the queries and uh, so that, for example, I could send them across the wire to other devices, so this could work in you know in peer-to-peer -peer scenarios and so forth. To have RX just suddenly 
come up and be you know have all the data persisted and and be able to process on the other side of things and that's an ongoing effort that I hope to complete this summer so that you could easily use it in the you know kind of a socket IO scenario any other PAP stuff as well so I think it has a lot of upsides there but what could be very interesting, for example, is if you could build a query model using using Rx, and I could take that serialized expression tree, as it were, and then query Postgres or Mongo or or whatever MySQL or whatever you want to do, but using the maps and filters and all that that you're already used to, and and mapping those things to the the selects and and wares and, and aggregates and so forth. And just briefly back to like the compatibility thing, mm-hmm. there's a thing called a, like the, there's a transducers spec. How does this relate to that? Well, so transducers is a fairly interesting thing. So that came out of the closure community, and the idea with that was to have these reducers. So reducers go back quite a while in terms of being able to reduce data streams. And the idea with transducers is the ability to do modification and transformation and aggregation and so forth without any, say, intermediate data structures being created. So it just goes from one to the other to the other to the other. And what's what's nice is that that kind of model fits in fairly well with with RX, for example, and so much so that you can use you know Cognitex transducers or James Long's transducers libraries. And we have a transduce method, which basically you can just pass it in there, and basically you'll get the same benefits that you would use you know regular transducers on arrays, but now you get it on observables, and it'll be you know, collapsing those maps, filters, and aggregations, and so forth into a very tiny operation. So that, to me, is is kind of a cool thing. I, I think the interoperability is is really kind of cool with that. So let's bring it to the next sponsor, Lyft Security. RequireSafe is Lyft Security's latest offering to the Node Security world. If you haven't heard, Lyft Security created the Node Security project to audit all of the modules in NPM. The Node community has since grown exponentially to where the NPM registry contains roughly 160,000 modules today. The problem RequireSafe aims to solve is, whose code are you running in production? To clarify just that, RequireSafe offers dedicated resources looking after their third-party code for subscribers, early warning and recommendations for remediation for when an issue is identified, documentation for developers on common gotchas when using certain modules, integration with your deployment and CI tools. As sensitive vulnerabilities become resolved in public, this info will be made available to the community at large. RequireSafe is currently available in beta. To check it out, visit requiresafe.com. If you're interested in hearing more about Lyft's auditing services, or want to bring a security-first mindset to your team's development process, contact the Lyft team at liftsecurity.io or at liftsecurity on Twitter. So you're the author of RxJS? Yep. Um, so I guess you've covered where RxJS came from, but maybe you could give us a little bit of an overview of like the, I guess the current state of Rx and you know, how it fits in, into the community. Sure. Like I said, right now what we're doing is really working on, on performance, making sure that, that people are uh, getting the best experience possible, but also, you know, like I said, the, the shims, out there so that you know if people want to implement an Rx interface to their library without taking on everything that Rx entails, 
then there you go. Boom, you have it. I think that's that's super, super valuable to have. Then we have things like the query expressions and things like that that we're going to as well as, you know, making sure that our generator support is is really good, our you know, iterables support is is really good. What we've truly made an effort to do is so for example, you know, if, if I call flat map, which is you know the idea of, of mapping and merging together a couple of collections. The idea that other collection could be an array, it could be an iterable, it could be a promise, whatever, and it will still work with Rx. So that's certainly one thing that we, it could even be a generator, for example, and you, you could be able to use it that way. And a lot of those other things that, that we're trying to do, we're also trying to do it in more of a modular format in the 3.x time frame, so that, for example, if I only want map and filter and I want, say, scan or, or take until or whatever, I can just require those directly of Rx and I don't get the whole library weight put upon myself. So that is definitely the other aspect of it, you know, trying to make sure that it's, it's, it's a lot more modular and, and so forth. And the kind of the way that, that Lodash did with breaking apart things by function by function, that's good when it comes to things such as, you know, Lodash. You know, when you're dealing with observables, you're mostly dealing with chained APIs. So it, it gets fairly difficult to get that full benefit in a more modular sense, as it mm. were. That and, and the other potential downsides are things like the long stack traces that I'm providing you know, in, in the base, you're missing. Because there's no way I know where the beginning and the end of what the code you brought in was. So therefore, you can certainly you know, implement your own long stack traces and eliminate anything from my code. But... I can't provide that for you. And there are other things, such as you know, when we're dealing with reactive programming, we're, tr we're trying to deal with having a consistent singleton scheduler, which you know puts things in order so that I can schedule something immediately, or I can schedule something next Tuesday or five seconds from now. So you kind of need this global coordinator to do that and and for that to work in node then you have to to you know basically make it a singleton for everybody yeah and, and that's going to make things difficult for the way that npm you know yeah, well yeah so you basically you you have to be stuck with npm3 or you have to do some npm deduping to ensure that basically you're dealing with the same rx throughout so, like I said, it, it presents a number of challenges, things that I don't think that we can't overcome. But at the same point, it's it's a lot more difficult than, say, breaking up a, a low dash or underscore than it is to to deal with breaking up something that's that is fundamentally async and has to have some sort of global coordinator, as it were. Right. And so you mentioned that you were working on performance. What what are the overheads of using RX on, on a project like you know compared to if I, if I was going to build it with just you know node events or something? Yeah, completely disregarding the the human factor here. There is is minimal overhead. I mean, the, obviously you take some penalties with the composition that we give you with the startup and teardown and, and the schedulers determining when things happen and so forth and the object allocations. But in terms of a lot of the things that we are able to do, 
we've made a lot of, of progress in terms of reducing closure scope to nil so, you know, so that we don't have a lot of chain closures. We've cleaned up if you have two maps in a row or two filters in a row that we can combine them into a single operation. Therefore, it's much, much faster because you don't have an, another intermediate observer, as it were. Mm -hmm. Well, actually, observable, you still have an observer, but those kinds of things that you basically get. So I'm constantly you know, on the hunt for, for better perf, and you know, from the last version to 3.x, I'm noticing you know, a lot of the things that we've, we've done. You know, I'm getting you know, 20,000, 30,000 more ops per second kind of thing. So I'm, you know, I'm pretty hopeful on what we've already been able to produce. But I'm not willing to, to do some things that you know, sacrifice it for readability purposes and, and so forth. Because I know like Bluebird, for example, does a lot of really gnarly tricks and, and so does Lodash, but the code becomes very brittle and hard to maintain after a while. And at a certain point, is async programming already just good enough? Does it need to be that much faster in the fact that you're dealing with events that are already asynchronous? How much overhead is it really adding? What about, like, have you looked into, I mean, this is something I've personally thought about is, you know, taking some of these sort of structures and, you know, running them through some sort of static analysis and kind of, you know, if you can detect that, hey, there's no async stuff going on in between these two streams, I could literally just grab the lines from this thing and jam them in the same function. Have you looked yeah, at sort of anything... Uh yeah, method fusion is certainly things that we're looking into, absolutely, which is what we we're doing with the two maps and the two filters, obviously, so we can do that. And there are certain other things that we can do, like, for example, if, if I know you're going to use a scheduler that's going to schedule something immediately, and not through a timeout or anything like that, but immediately, immediately, I can probably just throw out the scheduler altogether and cut a few frames out of the stack. Those kinds of optimizations absolutely are possible, and I'm doing so uh, RxJS seems to be like the probably the oldest and biggest, I guess. Would you say that for the uh, reactor programming? I, I, I think it's fair in terms of at least uh, the the oldest, and 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 in terms of pure downloads. I mean, we, we we certainly get quite a few on NPM. You know, up to about two million a, a month, something like that. Oh. But that's not to discount the other ones. You know, that's have come along in the meantime. There are you know there are a lot of other libraries that you know have inspired me as well you know bacon was one of those that was kind of driven out of some of the frustration for some of the learning curve that is involved with rx and dealing with hot versus cold observables it's a thing unto itself that you just kind of have to understand that sometimes data sources will continue to go whether you're listening or not versus those that will always give you the same answer time and time again so that's like push and pull stream sort of idea. Yeah, kind yeah, it, it kind of in the in that same kind of thing. It's or it's it's sort of like watching a movie versus watching a play. You're not ever going to get the, the same thing when you go to a play versus a movie. You can you know go backwards and forwards, and it's going to be the same each and every time you look at it. It's that kind of thing. Like for example, mouse movements are not going to be the same depending upon when you subscribe to it. But if I take an array and I turn it into observable and I subscribe to it, I'm going to get the same answer every single time. And that was that was the big difference. He decided that you know he didn't like that particular aspect of, of RX, so he went off and 
and created his own thing. And that and we weren't, you know, open source. It was still early days. It was, it was an ugly, ugly thing where you know, some things were just hacky and, and so forth in the early days of Rx. So we went off and created Bacon, and you know, then he decided to add in some FRP concepts, such as the idea of, of, of properties or behaviors, as it were, whereas I made no delineation between the two. Then from that, there was a library called Kefir, which came out of being inspired by Bacon, but was really, really more interested on the performance side of things, because at the time... Bacon's performance was was not exactly great in comparison to a lot of other libraries. So over time, Bacon has certainly improved. But Kefir was, you know, its whole goal was I'm going to write this from scratch and I'm going to make it as as fast as humanly possible. And so he still keeps a lot of the the same things of, of properties versus events as that separation. And you know, a much smaller you know API surface obviously than Rx does, but like I said, there's a lot of crossbreeding throughout a lot of these libraries that, you know, people will come to me and say, you know, I really like this idea from this library. Can you implement it? And, you know, I, I see other libraries taking ideas from me, such as, you know, doing the method fusion and so forth and adding it to their library. So it's, it's a good, healthy ecosystem in terms of there's a lot of ideas out there, a lot of good ideas that are all worth exploring. And, and it's great that a lot of these libraries are getting the attention that they're getting, hopefully by creating this, this community that we have, in addition to you know, the standardization effort, I think will you know, obviously benefit us all, where we can have slight own spins on, on how we should be approaching reactive or async programming in general, or push-based in general. How much is... RxJS used at Microsoft? Like, what's the internal reach of this? If you're using Office 365, chances are you're using RxJS in one form or another. For example, uh, OneDrive Pro uses Rx. What we have is with the Office Graph and Delve is also using RxJS. So we have a number of, of properties basically within the office area are all using it in one form and fashion or another, a lot of it for you know event handling, error handling, and so forth. So they're using it. And as well, there are a lot of other groups that, are, uh, that have you know, not quite come out yet, but will be, that are also using it. So it's, it's continuing to definitely grow internally. And it's great to see that because we're starting, you know, you know, to see a lot of people out in the community using Rx, such as like uh, the Slack app for Windows uses RxJS, and that's you know about it in terms of of what it's doing. I mean, it's obviously being rewritten, but you're talking about you know larger scale applications, and it's just using it, and it's kind of neat to see. One more is the what prevents it from being adopted everywhere. Number uh, any number of, of reasons, whether it's lack of, of knowledge about it, quite honestly, is is what largely it comes down to. Is is that still in this field, even though you know RxJS itself as a library is is five years old now, if not older, we've only really started noticing uh, you know pickup in activity maybe in the past year or so of, you know, people are starting to say, oh my gosh, this reactive programming stuff is cool. 
I started to get invited to the conference speaking circuits, and everyone wants to know basically how Netflix and others built their applications at scale using things like RxJS, and so that's how it's finally starting to catch on. So I think it's more along the lines of it's it's still so, so new to people. I mean, I, I see it every day when I do a search for reactive programming. A lot of people are like, whoa, this is so new to me, and it's, and it's, it's mind-explodingly awesome, but I've got a lot to learn. In my experience, the... It's hard to teach an old dog new tricks sort of thing. And so people have sure. kind of patterns that they're used to using for building applications. And this thing's kind of like, now you need to just throw all that knowledge that you had out the door, all the libraries, all the tools you were using, yeah. and just be like, and replace them with this new fandangled. Everything's an observable. Um, yeah, everything's a stream. It's, it's kind of yeah. that, you know, that Zen-like moment, like everything that you're dealing with is a stream of data, as it were, just for you to manipulate and if people can start thinking in those terms, then it becomes a lot easier to kind of reason about your application. You're like, oh, well, uh, yeah, my mouse moves are nothing but a stream. My AJAX call that I just made is a stream. My server sent events, just a stream. My WebSockets, just a stream. WebRTC, just a stream. Any number of those things are like, oh, huh. And, and, yeah. and kind of the light just just goes off for them, and which is why I sent you all the the link for you know all those people that are are doing it with React. Is a lot of these people are only touching RX for the very first time, and they're like going as far deep as possible to say, well, what can I really use this for in anger? You know, creating apps and so forth. Right. And so this is a, a lot of for a lot of people when when React came out. That was their first introduction, as it were, to this, this term reactive. And then they started to realize, well, what React was, gave them wasn't quite enough for what they wanted. And so they were looking for additional things to put on top of it. And, and Rx was, was just a natural fit there because it's, it's framework agnostic in that it can plug into just about everybody yeah. from okay. Node to Angular to so forth. All right. Thanks a lot for talking with us about that. Yeah, like I'm, I learned a lot from that. So I guess now it's time to plug something. Okay. I'm going to, to plug the Tali project, which is one of my other projects that I'm working on here at Microsoft. And the idea there is it's an open source platform for building applications where you're really in charge of your own data on your devices. So, for example, you can write an app on Android, iOS, and eventually Mac, Linux, etc., so that you can synchronize back and forth your data between these without requiring the internet. So it'll be peer-to-peer with the possibility of adding in the cloud if you want to. And the majority of it's written in uh, in uh, JavaScript, Cordova, JX Core, and all of that, and all of it's open source. And it's a lot of fun to to be at Microsoft uh, right now, just with the whole idea of everything that we're doing is is open source by default yeah it seems like there's some kind of weird who the hell what's going on microsoft's changed <laughs> yeah exactly yeah. but but yeah i mean all of our communication that we try to do is on our public mailing list and so forth so you know feel free to you know to check it out so i wanted to plug a friend of mine matt mckeg he's from new zealand he's a JavaScript developer. I met him at JSConf Christchurch, JSConf OneShot. Saw him playing around on his little MIDI controller and 
he just blew me away within about 10 seconds about uh, with his like awesome musical talent and went up and chatted to him and turns out that not only did he was he was making all of his own music he also wrote all of the, his own software to interface with the midi controller and it was all done using web midi web audio yeah so he's gone and, and he's open sourced the tool that he's using it's called loop drop and you can go to loopjs.com and you can purchase this application but it's also open source so you could also just download it but yeah it's a, it's a great little tool for building loops and stuff and it's all open source and he's a cool guy and he makes nice music so i just wanted to plug plug matt so yeah and let's talk about upcoming events on august 21st to 22nd we've got brazil js happening in porto alegre in brazil you can go to braziljs.com.br to find out more about that JSConf EU is happening September 6th to 9th in Ireland, nodeconf.eu. And JetConf happening October 6th to 8th in Richland, Washington in the United States. And you can go to andjetconf.com to find out more. CampJS 6 is happening in November on the Gold Coast, Australia. You can follow CampJS News on Twitter to find out when more information is announced about that. Then there's also JSConf Asia happening November 19th to the 20th in Singapore, 2015.jsconf.asia to find out more. That'll be a great event. So I recommend people come out to that. I live in Singapore, so I'm going to plug that. And there's also NordicJS coming up. You can probably Google NordicJS and find out about that because we don't have a link at this exact moment. So thanks a lot, Matt. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's been uh, it's been a long time coming, but uh, I'm I'm very glad to have been here. So, if you want to find out more about NodeUp, you can follow NodeUp on Twitter. Uh, if you're interested in sponsoring us, email NodeUp at gmail.com. And see you at the in the next podcast. Bye. Thank you.